Thank you. Okay, uh, we are continuing on, nearing, nearing the, uh, the end of our time in the book of Philippians. We've got a few more weeks. Uh, it'll go for about another uh, month or so. Um, we, are, we are closing in on uh, Paul's final words to the church at Philippi. We're wrapping up chapter 3. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that Philippians is a study in the theme of joy, that what the Apostle Paul was leading the reader to, leading the listener to, is to a deeper experience of joy. The problem is, or the, the, the resistance is, if you read it, and you know that Paul is leading us to joy, uh, it's a little frustrating because Paul doesn't lead us to joy the way that we want to get to joy. We want to get to joy by climbing and achieving and mastering and overcoming and what Paul says is actually, Christian, your path to joy is upside down. Your path to joy comes by losing. It comes by suffering. It comes by getting to the bottom of the ladder, not the top of the ladder, to experience more of the joy of Jesus. So, talking about the things that we must lose in order to gain more of the joy of Jesus. Uh, and this morning, we'll be talking about losing. Uh, there will be a joy for us in losing our unknown future. There's a deep joy that comes when we actually know uh, where we're headed uh, and the glory that awaits us. So, it's a quick uh, preface. If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter three, four short verses, starting in verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, uh, we come before you um, as you've revealed yourself to us in your word, uh, we, we, we need you. We need you more than we even uh, comprehend. Uh, we, we don't even know all the places that we need to see you. We don't know all the places that um, we're broken and need healing. And so through the power, the mystery, and the majesty of your word that reveals to us who you are, would you do that now? Would you do the healing? Would you put the healing salve of the gospel um, on our wounds this morning. Guide us as we come to your word. We can't see it, hear it, or understand it apart from you. And so would you open our ears and open our hearts to do that this morning, we pray. We pray also for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so. Whiteboard out means that Elliot has a lot to say, okay? Uh, and so we are, um, we are gonna, we're gonna spend some time together this morning. Uh, I also was in Chicago all this last week doing a, a funeral for my wife's uh, grandfather. Uh, we, we rolled back in late Thursday night, um, early Friday morning, actually, um, at an ungodly hour. Uh, and so what you're about to see is what it looks like when Elliot writes a sermon in a day and a half, okay? So uh, Whiteboard's gonna help us stay on track. But it may not jump off the page at you, it may not jump off the screen at you when we just read this passage. Um, but this whole, this whole section, these four verses as Paul closes out Philippians 3, is about the human experience. 
And what Paul is talking about uh, is what some German philosophers uh, over the last century, century and a half, uh, have called the experience, the human experience of unheimlich. What that means, what has been uh, uh, kind of colloquially known as is the uncanny, uh, the, the idea that there are things that feel familiar but still off. There are things that um, let me know this is a familiar experience, this world, but it still doesn't feel like things are right or as they should be. The term unheimlich, which I'm going to write up here and I will say a lot, so get used to it, um, is a term that literally means, this is a, a wonderful phrasing, not at homeness. What the human experience is, is a massive experience of not feeling at home yet. What the human experience is, is an understanding, is a realization, sometimes slow but steady, of coming to grips with the fact that I can't seem, it doesn't matter what I seem to do, I can't quite seem to feel at home here. I can't quite seem to get things settled. It's this constant, baseline, antsy feeling that leaves us never feeling at home. It's why we're always on the move. It's why we never settle down. It's why we're always restless. It's why being still, even for four minutes, is really really difficult. It's why we're all vaguely chasing something, grasping for something, because what I want to feel is I want to feel settled. I want to feel at rest. I want to feel at peace. I want to feel at home. But nothing seems to deliver on that, and so I will attach that unheimlich feeling. I will attach the, I don't feel at home yet, and it doesn't matter what I've done or what I put my mind to or how much money I've made or what career I've chosen. I can't seem to get rid of the nagging feeling that things aren't at rest in me and outside of me. Nothing seems to quench the wanting. Nothing seems to make me feel like my wanting will ever go away. Other philosophers over the years have called this the human angst. Many of us define our experience of it by our Enneagram number, which is fine. Uh, the Bible calls it groaning. It was from our call to worship in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation, including you, is groaning for something. Like a, like a woman that's pregnant in the pains of childbirth. Like groaning, like this deep-seated, oh, like what? Why can I not feel settled in my life? Why don't things seem to ever deliver on getting me where I want to get to and making me feel like it's finally at home? I'm finally in a place that's safe and settled and peaceful. That's what this whole passage is about. Four verses. Unheimlich, the not-at-homeness that we all feel. And so the Bible, many places, but this passage in particular presents two options for how the human can experience unheimlich. We're going to talk about both of these. The first, he says, is you need to know, readers of Philippians and attenders of Midtown, that there are some who walk as enemies of the cross. That there are those in the world that walk opposed to the way of Jesus. There are those in the world that walk opposed to the work of Jesus. And so we can spend some time here. We can spend, even though you might be a believer, even though you may have placed your faith in Jesus, we can live as an enemy of the work and power of Jesus in our life. And it relates to how we handle the human experience of not feeling at home. And so he gives some features. He gives some characteristics. How would I know if I'm walking or those in the world that are walking as an enemy of the work and the power of Jesus in them? One of the things he says, and we'll talk about this kind of on both sides, but the first thing, he, he, he begins to give you a list of features, a list of characteristics, and the first thing he says is that, hey, one of the ways you're going to know if you walk as an enemy of the cross is, what is your God? And he says, and this is kind of comical, 
maybe at first read, but he says, there are those that walk and their God is their belly. Now, for the, for the first century reader, the belly was the, the seat of the desire, the seat of the appetites, physical and spiritual and emotional. A way that we would maybe describe that today is your gut. Like, what's going on in here? And what, what Paul says, one of the ways you'll know who, if you're walking as an enemy of the cross is you have made your belly, your gut, your desires, your appetites, your God. You bow down to them, you worship them, you crown them as Lord of your life. And here's what that looks like. Whatever I want, I can have. If my heart wants it, it's got to be right. If I have a desire for it, then it must mean I, that, that I need to go fulfill that desire and have that desire. And nothing should be able to tell me that I can't have the things that I want because my gut, my desires, my belly is my God. If you don't feel at home, then go find whatever home you think will deliver on that feeling. Don't feel like things are settled? Then what is your heart telling you will go make you feel at home? Go get it. If you want it, have it. If you crave it, get it. If you desire it, don't let anything tell you you can't have it. The only problem with that is, is that is it possible that you may not know what it is you actually want? Is it possible that your gut is not a good God? Is it possible that the things that you think you want won't actually deliver on making you feel at home and making you feel settled? You may think you've reached the bottom of your desires. You may think you're in touch with them. You may think your gut is worth following. But what if you haven't even gotten close to the bottom of your desires? What if what you think your heart wants, what if what you think your gut wants, what if your belly is telling you what you want and it's not even close to what you actually need? What if you don't actually know where home is? But you've decided that my gut, if I want something, it will deliver on settling my not at homeness. But what if you don't actually know what home is? What if your desires don't actually teach you what is home? And if you keep chasing your desires, you will never seem to arrive. Because here's what will happen. Every time I attach my, my appetite, my gut, my belly, my, my soul's desires to something, and I attach it and say, make me feel not at home. Deliver on this not at homeness. Make, me, make this feeling go away. Every time I attach something to that, it won't deliver, and so then I have to move on to something else. And so it actually perpetuates the not at homeness. It actually perpetuates the restlessness because I keep attaching my gut to something and then it doesn't deliver, so I have to go find something else. We grow tired of every place that promised to be the end of the road for us. So he says the next feature. He says not only are enemies of the cross, is their God their belly, he says their glory is their shame. Now, um, that may be, he says they glory in their shame, and you may go, no, shame is so bad. Why would anyone ever glory in their shame? Follow this logical progression. If your gut is your, is your God, if your belly is what you bow down to, if your desires is what you obey, and nothing seems to deliver, you will end up attaching your desires and therefore your actions to things that will cause much shame for you. You will end up pursuing things and participating in things and acting on things that will cause you to take a shame shower often. And you will swim in the pool of shame and then the sickness of that doubles down. And here's, where, here's what Paul is saying for those that glory in their shame. Here's what he's saying. It actually psychologically becomes a double sickness because we end up believing that our shame is our identity and we end up falling in love with our shame. We actually don't know how to get rid of the shame and so we end up making the bed with it. And we end up actually not knowing who we are apart from living in shame. The shame spirals 
and secretly we love it. We love the feeling it gives us. We love our ability to manipulate people when we're in shame. We love the attention it gives us. And our shame becomes our identity, an identity to glory in, because we have so grown used to attaching our life to our desires and thinking something will deliver on my not-at-home feeling that when we end up in shame, this becomes our identity, and we don't know who we are apart from that. You might not even know what to do if you got completely liberated from your shame. You may not want it. It's like Jesus coming up to the person who hasn't walked their whole life and says, do you want to get well? Do you actually, do you want to be healed? Because if you get healed from this, it's going to change everything. But we've grown so comfortable in this place that to actually be healed from shame may not be what we want because we glory in it. Another feature. Everybody happy yet? Here we go. Anybody feeling at home this morning? Here we go. Here's what he says. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. And then he says this. Their focus is in earthly things. Never ask, can we see that in the back or is this just purposeless for those? Ramsey's, we good? Can y'all see that? Okay, good. Um, I'm sorry, I just saw you in the, or- the bright orange. UT gave you away. I'm sorry. Um, here's what he says. Of course, if you've made your God your belly, and of course, if you've fallen in love with your shame, then your mind, your focus is on earthly things. The most popular way to try to quell and quench and quiet the unsettling sense of my not-at-homeness is just to try to turn this place into my home. Nothing feels like home? Well, then I guess this is just what home is. I guess that if, if we're not at home, maybe that I'm supposed to feel this way all the time, I better just get comfortable with the fact that this place is my home and do the best that I can making this place feel like my home. It's so difficult to live with the weight of feeling like I'm not at home, and so the easiest thing to do is to let myself be taken over by the distractions and the entertainment and the numbing and anything that will pull my attention away from how I feel all the time. Maybe something here will finally deliver on making me feel like I'm, 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 I'm at home. But if I don't believe I'm at home and I don't believe that I actually have a homecoming one day, then the best way to deal with that is to try to turn this current reality into my home. So of course your mind is on earthly things if, this, if you're an enemy of the cross. Of course if you have made your gut your God, of course if you have lived and gloried in your shame, then, th- then your mind is on earthly things. And he takes all of that together, all wrapped up into this, all wrapped up into, if this is how you interact with the feeling of being not at home, if this is how you are trying to quiet this feeling of Unheimlich, then here's what he says about you. Your end is destruction. Now he's not just talking about hell, that's, that's included in that for sure, but here's what he's saying to you. If this is how you handle the feeling of not at home, if this is your God, if this is your glory, and this is your focus, it will destroy you. The very earth that you want to make you feel at home will actually turn into a prison. It will not liberate you. It will decimate you. And it's exactly the moment when I try to turn this place into my home that I feel the weight of how much it is not my home and I buckle under the weight of it. I've been made for a different world. I've been made for enchantment. 
And so when my belly is my God and my glory is in my shame and I focus on earthly things, when I turn this place into my home, when I try to make this place my home, then I feel the full reality of just how not at home this place is. And then, not only does it become a distant land where I feel more like an alien, feel more like a foreigner, feel more like I'm not at home, it ends up crushing me. It ends up decimating me because it makes me lose my sense of who I am. I don't know who I am or where I'm at. I don't know anything. I don't know up from down. I don't know right from wrong. I'm lost in the not at homeness, and I don't know where I'm at. Even if my world is filled with earthly delights, those delights cannot be enjoyed because I'm demanding that they make something happen that cannot happen here. And so the reason why these people, the enemies of the cross, and we are guilty of it too, the reason why the end of that is destruction is that when you turn in on yourself and you only obey your desires and you try to squeeze all of this out of the road home, you end up never finding rest. You end up destroying yourself and you have no idea who you are or where you are. Destruction is the natural end to a life that demands to have home now. And so much of our restlessness and our disappointments and our discontentment is a, is, a, is a result of trying to convince us that we can turn this place into a home. We can make our home here. It's like Sisyphus trying to push the boulder up the hill. At the end of the day, it will turn and crush you. And you will be back at the bottom and you'll have to start all over again. And you will never get that boulder over the hill. But please understand this. The opposite of this, which we're gonna talk about in a minute, the opposite, the alternative to making your God your belly and glorying in your shame and making your focus on earthly things, the opposite of that is not escapism. It's, it's not a hallmark Christianity that just is fluffy butterfly feelings. It's actually a dealing with reality. It's not um, oblivion of can I just get out of this place and escape into some cloudy nirvana state that makes me, feel, makes me not feel anything. That's not the Christian alternative to being an enemy of the cross. The alternative, biblically speaking, is a refugee spirituality. And here's what the refugee understands. Sure, this place is not my home, yet. I understand that I'm a pilgrim. I understand that I'm a refugee. A pilgrim on a journey that knows where my ultimate home is and knows the father and the king of that kingdom that will one day turn this place into my home. And so if that's my understanding, if I understand that this place is not my home and trying to make it my home will not work and my God becomes my belly and my glory becomes my shame and my focus on earthly things, if that's not the option, here's what the pilgrim, here's what the refugee Christian understands. Not only is it not my home yet, I actually have a realistic expectation of what the road home will be like. I expect certain things here on the road home. I, I don't deny them, I don't dismiss them, I don't numb myself to them. I expect for life to be hard I expect for the road home to not be butterflies and rainbows. I expect pain to happen. I expect suffering to happen. I expect for the road to be really difficult. That's the second option here. That's what Paul says in the opening line. He says, don't be an enemy of the cross. He says, join in imitating me and others along the road. Paul had made himself very comfortable in pilgrim spirituality, in refugee spirituality that understood, I'm not home yet. Paul was very comfortable in that, and so he's telling these young Christians in Philippi, watch me, 
Watch me and watch others like me who know that we're not home yet and who know that home is coming. Find people in your life that have understood and accepted Unheimlich as a reality. And they don't avoid it and they don't deny it, but they also know it's not the end of the story. Find people like that and imitate their life, Paul says. This is what he describes in the second half of the passage. Let me read verse 20 and 21 for you. Allie, can you throw it back up? Verse 20 and 21 is talking about refugee spirituality on the other side. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Okay, now there's a little bit different language, but it's actually the same exact categories over here. I'm gonna pull this apart and show us how Paul's actually showing how the Christian, how the, how the pilgrim, how the refugee understands these same categories, their God, their glory, and their focus. The first thing he says is the God of the refugee, the, the God of the, of the pilgrim who's on his way home, understands that my belly is not my God, the Lord Jesus is my God. And he actually, I don't know if you caught it in there, but he just described Jesus as the most supreme being in the universe. He will be able to subject all things to himself, and one day that will finally happen. And so here's, here's how this compares to making your belly your God. Here's what he just said. Maybe, 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 just go with me for a second. Is it possible that your belly doesn't actually know what you want, but your Jesus does? And what he has called for you to do, his law for you, actually knows you better than you know you. Is it possible that he knows your desires more than you know your desires? Is it possible that he knows what's good for you more than you know what's good for you? And he's actually laid it out in his law. And he says, hey, actually, is it possible that you're not fit to be your own God? And, but the Lord of the universe is, and how about listening to him? That may actually liberate you, not imprison you. What if the supreme one that has laid out laws for me to obey knows my desires better than I know my desires? What if I'm not the best decider of what's best for me? And, and you may be going, how offensive, and don't tell me that I can't have what I want, and don't get in the way of me being my true self, and I'm not trying to. I'm telling you, you may not be the best one to decide on how to get to your true self. Maybe the one that made you, who can subject all things to himself, who is the ruler of the universe, maybe he knows how to get to your true self better than you do. Maybe the one that made you in his image actually knows what it's like to get you back and be reformed into his image. If I'm not at home, what if the one who made my home is worth listening to? What if he's a better Lord on my pilgrimage than I am? But then he says, when, when that Jesus returns, when he brings home to us, he says he will transform our lowly bodies into a glorious body. So here's what he just said. Your glory will be a restored body. Now, that may not jump off the page. Uh, for me, it does. <laughs> um, but you may not go, man, having like a chiseled, you know, workout six-pack abs doesn't really seem to be glorious. That's not what he's talking about. Now, maybe. I don't know. I don't think Jesus had a six-pack. I don't know. But he's not talking about, man, you're going to look like you do CrossFit every day. That's not what he's talking about, okay? And I do not like you CrossFit people, okay? Just need to slide that in there, okay? Your, your body is not the heavenly body, okay? Just get over it, okay? You have made your gut your God, okay? <clears throat> Just need to slide that in there. But here, this, this, is, this, this is such an undertaught Underrealized part of what the Bible says to us about what our future is. 
And let me show you how it connects to what we're talking about. Here's what this promise is. Is that the hope of the Christian's homecoming is that all of your shame will be healed. When we try to make this place our home, when our gut is our God, we end up reveling in and glorying in our shame. And when we glory in our shame, we destroy our bodies. Because our bodies carry with us the scars and the burden and the weight of the shameful things that we've done and have been done to us. You are not just a soul with a skin covering. That's not the biblical view of humanity. You are a whole person, and your body carries the story of your life. There's been a lot written about this in the last decade. Body keeps the score, anatomy of the soul, soul of shame. I could list five others that I've perused over the last couple years. You cannot separate the things you've done and have been done to you and the effect that those things have had on your body and your mind. You cannot. You are a whole person body, soul, and spirit. And so when shame, when shame and shameful acts that we have participated in um, are done to us or done by us, they affect our body. They change our body. You carry with you. You carry in you. You carry on you the scars and the wounds of your life. And listen to what Jesus just said. Listen to what Paul just said about Jesus. When Jesus returns, listen to the promise of the future that awaits you. Your body will be restored. Your body will be healed. Your body will be glorious. Which means you will be restored. And you will be healed. And you will be glorious. Without scars or spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, Ephesians 5 says, you will be radiant the Bible says, in soul and body one day. This is not some like uh, random fact that Paul threw in there to try to go, hey, don't, don't make your gut your God and, and don't glory in your shame and don't focus on earthly things. Let me tell you about the hope that's coming. Let me tell you about the future. Oh, and by the way, you're gonna be jacked. That's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's, he's saying, hey, if this, if this is how you are gonna live in the not-at-homeness, some, some damage is gonna be done, and all of us have the scars to prove it. All of us have the stories to prove it. All of us have the burden and the weight of what sin has done to us. And Paul's saying, hey, part of the hope of what's coming, part of the hope of the glory that awaits you is your whole body will be made glorious, meaning all of your shame will be healed, all of your shame will be restored, all of your shame will be wiped clean, and you will be glorious the same way Jesus is glorious. This is what your home will be like. And all the things done to you in the night will be healed by the dawn of a new day. And all the pain of the shame that you have made your identity will be washed away in your lowly body, Paul says here, will be mended, repaired, and remade into a glorious state. And so instead of glorying in our shame, here's, here's what the gospel actually says. Here's what the hope of, of the Christian actually says to you. Instead of glorying in your shame, Paul comes and says, actually, the very things that have caused you shame will turn into glory for you. The curse will be reversed one day entirely, and you will not live in shame anymore. It will be completely removed from you, and your body will be remade into a glorious state. 
what sought to destroy you will actually turn into your glory. This will be the alchemy of your shame. Which leads the Christian to a different focus. Our focus is not earthly things. Our focus, he says, is in the opening line of of verse 20, he says, for you are heavenly citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where your focus is, and here's what he's saying, and this would have, this would have landed so hard, so powerfully on a, on a Philippian church that was its own city-state in, in, the, in the area of Macedonia. It was, it was its own uh, real city and bustling city with its own governance, but it belonged to the Roman Empire, that the people that lived in Philippi were actually citizens of Rome. They had a different world, a different ruler that actually was, was a higher citizenship than the one that they currently lived in. And so for the Christian, for the refugee on the road, we understand from the start of our journey, this place is not our home, it is leading us home. This place is not our home yet. One day this place will be our home when our true citizenship, where our true country, where our true city, the place that we really belong to comes here. But we know now it's not. This is what Paul's saying. He's, he's, before Freud and Heidegger used this term, before Unheimlich was coined, Paul, Paul was saying the same thing. You're not at home yet. You're a, citizens of a, you're a citizen of a different land if you belong to Jesus. You should understand this place is not your home. You should understand that the way things are is not the way that things always will be. One day when Jesus returns, he is going to bring our heavenly home with him. And he will finish transforming this earthly place into his heavenly kingdom. But until that day happens, because we're not there yet, until that day happens, we understand as heavenly citizens, our primary place of belonging is a land, a country, a city, not quite here yet. That's what it means to be a heavenly citizen. That's what it means to understand that your citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. You understand you're always looking over the horizon for the city that is not quite here yet, but is coming. So if that's true, if we are heavenly citizens, if we're not at home yet, that's what Paul just told you, if we're, if we're really not citizens of this place, then of course we're refugees. Of course this road is going to be hard. Of course there's gonna be pain on the road. Have you ever talked to someone who's been an actual refugee or heard someone who's been an actual refugee speak about their experience? Their journey between one place and the next home was not fun. It, it, was, not, it was not easy. It, it, it had dangers and, and pain and trauma and, and, and sadness and sorrow and excruciating moments on the road. Of course things don't work the way they should here. Of course there's heartache. Of course there's tension. Of course there's unresolved issues. Of course there's questions without answers because you're a refugee and you're not home yet. So we should expect those things. That's normal. That's the human experience. That's what it means to understand that this place is not my home. So with all of that, here's how, here's how Paul says, enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Here's what he says to the Christian. Your end is not destruction. Your end is transformation. That's your end. Your, where this road leads is not to your destruction. Where this road leads of being a pilgrim on the way to being a citizen of a different kingdom, it leads to transformation. We're not headed to oblivion, we're headed to restoration. 
We're not headed to obscurity. We're headed to glorification. In other words, your future is your home. That's what Paul's trying to say here. That's what the whole passage is about. You're not home yet, but one day your home will come to you. That's how the Christian lives in the Unheimlich. That's how the Christian understands the world that they're in. We are not at home, but one day Jesus will bring our home to us. This world is not our home, but one day it will be. Listen, listen with all of this in mind now. I know you fully grasp all this, okay? I know this is wildly clear and, and, and pretty, okay? But with, with a, a brief understanding of this, read with me again Paul's closing two verses. We throw verse 20 and 21 up again, Allie? Listen to what he says. Understanding the nature of Unheimlich and the human experience of being a refugee. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, meaning what's coming from it to us, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christian, this is your guaranteed known future. Home is coming, and there will be a glorious homecoming that will transform you and the world you live in, and all will be well. But please understand, we are not home yet. But one day, our home will be brought to us. So those are the two options. Those are the two ways to experience Unheimlich. Those are the two ways to be human in this world. But buried in these promises is a scalpel. Buried in this guaranteed future is a little word that guides us in the tension. It's a great litmus test for us, this one little word, that this home, this homecoming that's coming to us, listen to what he says one more time about about being a refugee on the way, about what our God, our glory, and our focus is on either side. Listen to what he says is a great litmus test for us on which camp are you spending most of your time in? How are you acting as a pilgrim or a refugee on the way? Listen to what he says. But our citizenship is, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Now that word wait or await gets translated uh, eagerly await in other parts of scripture. It's used dozens of times in the New Testament. Paul and Jesus are constantly talking about waiting, awaiting, eagerly anticipating, waiting, waiting, waiting. The Old Testament, it's even more prevalent. The, the Hebrew word for it uh, is actually the Hebrew word for, for hoping is the same Hebrew word for waiting, that it's this, it's this experience. It's all across the Psalms. It's all across the prophets. There's a very biblical idea that he says, if you want to know how well you're doing or where you are spending your time as a pilgrim on the way, see how well you do in the awaiting. How good of a waiter are you? What does that little word tell us about the experience of being human, being a refugee? Well, if you're following along and understanding that there are different ways of handling the unheimlich, the not-at-homeness, and the Christian understands that we are not at home yet, that little word yet, that one day this will be our home, one day healing is coming, If the Christian understands that, then it would logically follow that you understand that part of being a Christian, part of being a human, part of being fully alive is understanding that the experience will demand of you much waiting. And that we would maybe sing on this side with Tom Petty, 
Waiting really is the hardest part. That it's excruciating to wait sometimes. This little word could expose in us how we are doing in the experience of being not at home yet. So let me ask you, how well are you at waiting on things? And I don't just mean like the glorious future of all things being made new and Jesus returning. That, that, is, that is where we're headed. He couldn't even wait. Couldn't even wait, could you? It's unbelievable. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. That was so rude. How well do you do in waiting when something is wanted or desired by you but you don't have it yet? I'm not just talking about ultimate things, daily things. How well do you wait on any given day? And here's maybe a helpful question to answer that question. How easily irritable are you? And I would probably say you are not the best person to answer that question. (laughs) Ask someone in your world, am I easily irritable? Easily irritable meaning like when things don't go the way that I want them to go and I get bumped, uh, what comes out of me? Is it rage or patience? Easy irritation is a sign of living on that side of the spectrum. What I want, I want it now. My gut is my God. I want it, I demand it, I must have it. And, 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 if I'm unwilling to wait, it means that when I don't have what my gut is demanding to have, when, when, I, when my focus is on earthly things and they're not delivering on what that I want them to deliver on, and, and I'm not waiting well, it means, please hear this, and this is, this is painful to admit, it's painful to say to you, it means you are unwilling to suffer. An, uh, an easily irritableness, uh, 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 someone who is impatient with even daily things is saying every time they're easily irritated is that I'm unwilling to suffer for this. I, I shouldn't have to suffer for this because waiting is suffering. Waiting is not fun. Waiting is difficult. Waiting is strenuous. Waiting is, is, is angering. And when we are unwilling to wait, we are saying I'm unwilling to suffer as I wait for it. I am unwilling to be a refugee on the road that is not home yet. That's what we're saying when we're easily irritated. So this week we were driving back from Chicago, um, which should have taken a certain amount of hours and it took a lot more of those hours because I have four children. Uh, And we're somewhere around Louisville, like so close to being home, and it's already taken so, so much longer than I wanted it to. And there's been so many potty breaks and so much feeding of the little one. And, and we, we stopped for a potty break. Um, I call it potty when I go to the bathroom. I, I had to go potty. And so we stopped for a potty break, and then we get back in the car, and 10 minutes back on the interstate, headed home. Voices from the back, nameless voices from the back. Uh, Dad, I got to go potty. N- no, you don't. No, you actually, you actually don't have to go, and, and you will hold it. And so then the threat comes from the back, well, then I'll just have to pee in my pants. Go for it. You, you, will, you will suffer in that then. That will be your punishment for you. No, so I'm like, I'm having all this. Precious wife says, they are children. We are not going to make them hold their, their potty for three hours, okay? So we pull back over, get into Cracker Barrel, going in, go in, come out. It's taking way too long. You know, how, how do you have to go already? It's, it's been 10 minutes that, since you last went. How do you have to go already? And so, exactly, I know. That's what I sounded like. And so, so then come back out to the car. The toddler doesn't want to get in the car seat. And so I'm, I'm grabbing the steering wheel. Wife is in the, in the back putting them in. And I'm going, sweetie, we have to go. 
we have to go right now. I don't know what you have to do. We have to go right now. She goes, I don't know what you want me to do. Do something. Do, do something to make this moment go away. That's what I'm feeling. So we get, in, we get in the car. We're driving home. We're back on the interstate. And uh, one of my children says, Daddy, I don't think you needed to be as mad as you were back there. <laughs> anyway. So here, here's, here's let, let, me, let, me just, let me just take this, this little moment. It's, it's nothing. It's an extra three hours in a car on a random Thursday. It's nothing. But I'm irritated. What does that say about me as a waiter? This is hard. I don't like the way this is going. This needs to change. I am unwilling to suffer while I wait. I will not do it. But it goes so much deeper than just a car ride home and travel plans and arrival times being not the way you want them to be. If you're willing to listen for it, if you're willing to see it, it's everywhere in your life. How willing are you to wait to suffer as you wait for a better marriage? What if it doesn't get good by the end of the month? Are you done? What if it doesn't get good by the end of the decade? Are you done? How willing are you to wait to suffer as you wait for a marriage at all? Or to demand that you get it and you get it now? How willing are you to wait and to suffer as you wait for things to existentially feel different in your life than the way they feel right now? How willing are you to wait and to suffer while you wait for relationships in your life to heal? Maybe the other side, maybe some of us need to ask this question. How willing are you to wait to suffer while you wait for relationships to not heal? Are you demanding that they get healed right now? And what if that, that wound, that separation, that, that chasm may, may be there till you die? Are you willing to wait for that? Are you willing to suffer in the waiting of that? How willing are you to wait and to suffer as you wait for justice to be done in the city, in the world, or in your own life? Or do you demand justice and vengeance now for those that have wronged you and for those that have wronged your friends and people in this city? Are you, do you demand that it happen right now? Are you willing to wait and suffer as you wait for those things to be done? And I, I could list a dozen more places like that that if you're willing to listen for it, you will find in yourself an easily irritableness a, and it will, it will come out of you. Ask, ask the people in your life, of how, just how when, when something bumps up against your world and it not being your home, when it bumps up against your Unheimlich and you're not feeling like this place is the way it's supposed to be, do you get angry? Do you get impatient? Do you get depressed? Because my and your impatience, our easily aggravated selves, our irritableness, are all, they're great litmus tests for how well we wait. They will show you the places where you have made your belly your God, where you glory in your shame and where you're focused on earthly things. They will show you that. You wanna know where your focus is? See how patient you are. You wanna know where your God is? See how patient you are. You wanna know how you're dealing with the shame of, of what you've done and what's been done to you? See how patient you are. Little word, it's a little powerful biblical word of waiting. The Christian grows the muscle of waiting 
The, the, the Christian understands that to be a refugee means until I'm home, I will be waiting. Until I'm home, I will have to suffer in the waiting. But if we know where our home is, if we know that home is coming to us one day, then we'll be willing to wait. If you know that home is coming, ultimately, you will be willing to wait on the road there. Daryl read it in our call to worship from Romans chapter 8. This is what he says. Listen to what he says at the end of this section of Romans chapter 8. He says, who hopes or waits for what he already has? You don't hope and wait for things that are already yours. You hope and you wait for things that aren't yours yet. But he says, but if we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. If you know that this is your hope, if you know that home and transformation is coming to you, you'll wait for it. Because your hope will be in it. Your hope won't be in this world. Your hope won't be in this place feeling like home. Your hope won't be in your God being your belly and getting how you feel changed right now. If a promised future is coming and we know it's coming, we'll be willing to wait for it. So here's the final question. How do we know it's coming? What's the proof that this homecoming is coming? Paul gives us another clue in the text. He says that if you live on this side of, of, the, of the spectrum, you're an enemy of the cross. And Paul actually says in there that he weeps over that phrase as he writes it. It's the only time that Paul talks about weeping and crying for himself. He says, I weep over the enemies of the cross. Like it breaks his heart that there are people that have to live like this. There are people that, that don't know about the hope that's coming. He weeps over it. But he says they're an enemy of the cross. And the reason why they're enemy of the cross, what's the opposite of that? If this is what it means to be an enemy of the cross, this is the side that says you're a cherisher of the cross. And what he's saying is, is that the cross is your greatest proof and is your greatest power source for getting the strength to wait more. Because here's what the cross says. The cross of Christ is how I know my Jesus is coming back for me. The love of Jesus displayed on the cross is my basis for knowing his certain return in the future. The cross is where Jesus suffered for my sake so that while I'm waiting in my own suffering, while I'm waiting on the refugee journey that is excruciating at times, I know that my suffering, just like Jesus' suffering on the cross, will one day turn into my glory. Jesus' suffering turned into his glory, turned into his ultimate transformation to save the world. And we know now, by looking at Jesus, that the evil that was done to him turned out for his good and the good of the world. Here's what we know. The evil and the suffering that we bear because of the cross is the guarantee that our suffering will turn into our glory one day too. In the words of St. Augustine, he says, so that we might have the means to go, the one we're longing to go to came here from there. For no one can cross the sea of the world unless one is carried over on it on the cross of Christ. Here's what he just said. You're going to make it home because someone has come to get you. You could not get home by yourself. And home could not come to you on your own. But the cross is proof of just how far Jesus is willing to go to bring you home and to bring home to you. The cross is where the love of God was displayed for me on a cosmic scale. And like a groom in waiting for his wedding day, this is how the Bible portrays Jesus, 
all the time, like a groom that is waiting on his wedding day to happen, Jesus has pledged his love to you and for you on the cross. He has let you know just how serious he is about ultimate glorification for you one day. He has let you know how far he's willing to go and how much he's willing to suffer to make you and to glorify you one day. So when the waiting is unbearable, we cherish the cross of Christ in our waiting. We're not an enemy of the cross, we cherish it, where we learn about what will happen to our suffering and we see our Jesus and how far he was willing to go, how much he was willing to suffer while he waited for ultimate things to happen too. In our waiting, we cling to the cross and we turn to the future that's coming and we believe that the dawn, the new day, our true home is coming. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we're not at home. And one day this world will be our home, but it's not there yet. And so we need the proof of the cross of just how, how much you love us and how much you love this world and your good creation. We, we need to know how serious you are about transforming us in this place one day. Would you give us the strength to wait? Would you make us patient? Help us in our easily irritableness as we wait. Would you be our, our, our functional God, not our gut, as we set our mind and set our focus on our true home? We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.